Chapter Sixteen of the Heart's Kingdom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heart's Kingdom by Maria Thompson Davies. Chapter Sixteen: The Jewel in the Matrix. When I awoke from a few hours of deep and exhausted sleep, I found my room fast filling with the strenuosities of the day. In fact, I opened them upon Harriet Henderson up dressed and briskly doing she had a large pasteboard box with her and the minute i brushed repose from my eyes she opened it and held up for my inspection a very short tulle garment besprinkled with tiny silk rosebuds along with a bonnet and other wee but distinctly feminine paraphernalia to match a basket adorned with a huge bow of tulle came from another box and i was forced to voice my admiration with the greatest vigour how i'll ever keep from eating sue up before she gets to the altar i can't see said harriet as she held the wee frock for a second against her breast it hurts me to think of my own breast to see harriet's eyes when she broods over sue i don't see how she was going to live life always as hungry as she is now i suppose i might just as well wear my tennis things because the guests will be already as completely enraptured as is humanly possible before my entry upon the scene of action of my own wedding i said as i sat up and took the small bonnet in my own hand it is too bad that jessie and letitia should worry themselves over my own wedding frock if susan is i was just saying when nell arrived beside my bed with the suckling in the very act of obtaining her early luncheon from the maternal fount the nurse has always had to follow nell about with her successive hungry offspring girls i really don't know what to do but young charlotte has given every single presentable garment that jimmy possessed to different unclothed children in the settlement who were needed in the pageant and mark and billy are laughing at her while jimmy is howling i just ran in to see harriet a minute and ask if she yes jimmy's wedding garments came home from mrs burns yesterday and i'll lend them to you just to spite those men who are simply ruining charlotte by the day said harriet as nell handed her the replete suckling wrong end foremost and picked up the small tulle bonnet with a gurgle of maternal rapture that was in some ways as young as the happy gurgle that the suckling gave as she settled into harriet's dependable arms for her morning nap harriet cradled her against her own round firm breast and for a second brooded then joined in nell's rapture over the garments for the bedizening of wee susan if harriet didn't dress and discipline my children i feel sure they would be found naked in a reform school nell said with a happy and careless gratitude there are some women to whom life is incidental and maternity the most casual adventure of all the happy-go-lucky variety are apt to produce just such children as charlotte or young james or susan and it is well if into their young lives there comes the hungry woman with a brooding mission young charlotte will probably be the first woman governor of the state and harriet was saying with a laugh when letitia and jessie arrived precipitately letitia had a parcel which contained a lingerie garment of mine whose lace and embroidery and ribbon combined would have enraptured most women and jessie carried in her hand a package of belated wedding cards they were followed closely by mammy who was in turn followed by the meek sally mammy's address was delivered to me first 
get up quick honey the men folks has begun on the second round of waffles and they'll be calling for you the day is on its shank and a-goin she admonished while sally turned on my bath they are having breakfast out in the garden and the day is perfect do you want blue or pink ribbons in this valenciennes set charlotte said letitia as she seated herself on the foot of my bed and drew out a ribbon bag whose contents were of many colors a fashionable wedding is a white lie you invite all the people you especially want to stay away sighed jessie as she seated herself at my desk and lighted a cigarette at which mammy rolled her black eyes and departed with her nose in the air and while they all chatted over the ceiling of my fate i arose and had my toilet made in my dressing-room in full hearing of the discussions about the best groupings of bridesmaids and the horror at the count of the cases of wine billy had ordered from the city for the dinner to the groomsmen the night before the wedding i adore mark seven tenths full but i don't like to endure the end of the jag next morning laughed nell as she began to put ribbons into the bodkins for letitia i saw harriet give her a long look from under her half-lowered eyelashes as she hugged the suckling closer to her breast billy had told harriet and me casually a few nights before that old mark's drinking to a double-decker liver and a sidestep in his heart oh gentlemen always drink in moderation i never worry over cliff said letitia complacently as she tied a decorative shoulder knot you expect to give him a daily dose of three drops on a lump of sugar letitia asked harriet as she exchanged glances with jessie one evening last week jessie and harriet had motored cliff in from the club just in time to save him from going over the riffles and letitia had been dancing with him without noticing his staggers there that is the very last stitch to be taken on your trousseau charlotte said letitia as she laid down the filmy garment she had been adorning with blue bow-knots press it sally and lay it with the rest of the set in the second tray of the medium-sized trunk you can lock it and give me the key i just can't stand it charlotte said jessie to me in a low voice as i came from the hands of the skilful sally and stood beside the window next to the desk you are all i have got and only you you understand i can't give you up i'm frightened hush so am i i answered her as my hand gripped her shoulder under the her heavy linen frock until i felt it must bruise it then i turned to the others collected them and descended to finish breakfast with the poplar's guest never a more radiantly beautiful morning had spread its loveliness over the harpeth valley than the one i found out in the garden the twenty-seventh day of september the gala day in the history of good Lowitz huge white clouds drifted back and forth in a deep blue sky and they were rosy at times with the sunlight but from some of the largest little tongues of lightning darted while others were lit by what seemed to be an internal glow of fire cool winds perfumed with the harvest and the ripening orchids and the vineyards out in the valley rustled in the treetops and flaunted in their vines the ardent sun seemed to be drawing from the bosom of the earth a hot mist which lay over the town like a filmy bridal veil only stirred gently by the vagrant veering gusts of the wind nature seemed to be holding herself in leash and only breathing upon the earth gently as if to stir some latent lushness into autumnal activity 
"'A perfect harpeth day for Mr. Jeffreys,' said the governor, as he came from his seat at the table to greet the girls and me. The rest of the masculine breakfasters followed, and I could see from the devastation of the table that they had all breakfasted well and to repletion. I also detected the worthless Jefferson, whom Mr. Goodloe had evidently loaned to his parents for the occasion. Lift father's full glass of julep and drain it with one gulp. Grab the half-glass that Nichols had left, gulp it, and begin on the finger or so in Billy's tumbler before Dabney could forcibly but quietly restrain him. In fact, I felt there would have been a riot among my servitors if Mr. Goodloe had not stepped aside and spoken a low word to Jefferson, which sent him busily at the table with his tray. And from that moment, Nichols' triumphant procession of inspection of Goodloets began. Mr. Jeffrey stood in the middle of the reincarnated old garden, looked for a long time at the poplars, which was like a green-encrusted gem with its old purple-red brick under the vines, glanced again and again at the chapel with its weathered stone that stood beyond the silver-leaf graybeards, then let his eye wander down the broad elm-bordered main street, past the courthouse, and past the settlement to the river bending around it all. Money couldn't build anything like it, Powers, he said to Nichols at his side. Time and gentle living have formed it as a jewel is made in a matrix. I was born in a mining camp, but I want you to start something like it, all for my great-grandchildren to live in. How many generations will it take? Give me five years, Mr. Jeffries, laughed Nichols in answer. Great good loads, great-great-grandfather and mine fought off the Indians from a stockade which stood where his chapel does now. But a year of modern life about represents a generation of pioneer endeavor. Not too fast, youngster, not too fast, said Mr. Jeffries. And I saw him exchange a grave glance with father. What we Americans must have is stabilizers now that we have annihilated time. Without the discovery of something of that sort, we will hurl along to destruction. What say you, Mr. Goodlaw? We have the same covert of wings that David used when things spun too fast for him, answered Mr. Goodlaw, with the jeweled radiance that always came from his face when he spoke of his faith, even casually. Only where there is no vision the people perish, and the people who invent flying machines and hold international law to account have vision. We don't know how much we've got, but it'll save us. After the material glass through which we see darkly is completely smashed for us, said father, with a curious sternness coming into his face that made me wonder. But we must take Mr. Jeffreys for a nearer inspection of our metropolis. Be with Mrs. Sproul in time for luncheon, and then help Mr. Goodloe open the Institute of Learning for Young Goodloets. In the motor-cars parked before the tall gate of the Poplars, all of the guests embarked for their review of the beauties of Good Lowitz. Nichols remained behind them while the half-sober but skillful Jefferson wrestled with a slight tire trouble of his slim blue racer. For a few minutes we were alone in the center of the wonderful garden, which had never seemed so lovely as upon the day in which it had fulfilled its own and Nichols' destiny. Today has brought just what I have longed for, have worked for and waited for, the commission for the spending of millions of dollars to make a little corner of the earth beautiful. Not a bad religion, that, said Nichols, 
as he told me that Jeffreys had spoken a few words of decided business to him as he had packed him into Mr. Cockwell's car with father and Mr. Goodloe. We'll take a honeymoon wander on the other side, as far from the machine guns as possible, and then I'll come home to begin my masterpiece. And as Nichols spoke, his wonderful eyes glowed as he looked out at a paradise ridge, as if he were gazing into a radiant future. Perhaps he saw a city not made with hands and did not recognize it. I see it all, he said, and put his arm around me while we started down the front walk as Jefferson pressed the horn to signal the readiness of the tire. I'm too busy to go with you, but I'll meet you at Mrs. Sproul's. A sudden impulse made me say, for I had intended until that instant to accompany him. A man can't eat his bride and have a trousseau, too, he laughed, as he drove off rapidly, leaving me standing by the old gate watching him. Then I turned and slowly walked out into the garden, and down to the old graybeards, and seated on one of the grass mats I found the reason I had unconsciously been drawn back. Martha was waiting for me there. Why, Martha, I exclaimed, startled without understanding just why. I might have gone and not known you were waiting. Why didn't you come and tell me you were here? I couldn't. I found I couldn't, she answered me, looking up into my face with her strange, sad eyes. I, I suppose I just came to peep in on you like I did to the coming out party, she laughed softly, with a note of self-scorn in her voice. Is anything the matter with, with Sonny? I asked quickly again unconsciously using the name for the stray that her tenderness had given him her white face and desperate manner frightened me no he's dressed in one of jimmy morgan's old suits and he is going to be taken from me this afternoon forever she answered with the note of bitterness deepening but you want him to go to school don't you martha i asked patiently as i sat down on a mat beside her I spoke to her as one speaks to the limited intelligence of a child, and I was slightly impatient at her distress. He asked me yesterday why everybody called him stray, and if it did mean stranger like Charlotte said, and if he would always be called that or have an everyday name like Jimmy. Soon he'll know, and then I'll lose him, as I'm losing everything else. Why won't you let me help you to, to begin over again? I asked her this time with less patience. Why have you, you locked yourself away from me? I can't. I won't ever tell you. I must go back. Now I've seen you in, in your happiness, but I don't hate you. I never have. And as she spoke, Martha rose and began to walk rapidly away from me. Oh, please don't go, Martha, I said. In just three days, I'll be going away for a long time, you know, and I want to help you in some way before I go. You ought to let me, and it worries me that you don't, now of all times. And as I put my selfish plea for ease to my conscience, something that was hot and rebellious made me want to stop the woman who was hurrying away from me. I won't, I won't make you unhappy, but I must go, I must, I'll, I'll be happy and good now. If you'll only be happy, good-bye. And as she called back at me over her shoulder, Martha ran from me down through the hedge and into the door of the chapel, which always, night and day, rain and storm, stood slightly ajar. A queer pain smote me 
to see that she had run from me into the only place in all the broad, smiling Harpeth Valley where I could not or would not follow her, and the sanctuary that she sought was for every man, woman, or child who wanted it. Only I could not and would not seek it. The covert of wings, I whispered to myself, as I went down the street to Mrs. Sproul's as rapidly as possible to be rid of my own company. As I repeated the words that the parson had used to Mr. Jeffreys, I noticed one great white cloud with a dark center flash fire into another, to a great crashing and rumbling. I wonder if it is really going to storm, I speculated gloomily, as I turned into the Sproul gate. But the brilliant sunshine seemed to fling me a dazzling denial from every petal of the white clematis that wreathed itself across the front porch, under which Mrs. Sproul arrayed in all the midday magnificence of good form, sat and waited for her guest. Mrs. Cockwell sat beside her, and they were delighted to see me and demanded happiness from me, which it was hard for me to give from the depths that had been stirred by my strange interview with Martha to which I felt I ought to have a key, but could not find it anywhere. End of chapter 16